Listen up, everybody. On Tuesday, March 19th, 4.15 Eastern Time, that's 1.15 here local in LA, I'll be hosting a webinar to discuss Cambria's two new ETFs, the Cambria Tactical Yield ETF, ticker TYLD, and the Cambria Micro and Small Cap Shareholder Yield ETF, ticker MYLD. Head over to Cambria's Twitter and LinkedIn pages to find the registration link. Once again, that's March 19th at 4.15 Eastern Time. Look forward to seeing you. Carefully consider the fund's investment objectives, risk factors, charges, and expenses before investing. This and other information can be found by visiting our website at www.cambryfunds.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing or sending money. Investing involves risks, including the potential loss of capital. The Cambry ETFs are distributed by Alps Distributors, Inc., member FINRA, FINRA. Welcome to the Meb Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Meb Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Hello, podcast listeners. Back in the saddle with Jeff here in the office. Bonjour, Jeff. <laughs> you were in Switzerland, though. Yeah, it's but they speak like a French-German, so they'll say bonjour. <laughs> Welcome back. Yeah, good to be here. What do you know? Highlights. What's been? Uh, what was going on? You were speaking. It's, a, it's always good to be gone for a few weeks. Come home. Your ha- my house is getting demolded after getting determited. So I'm displaced. I feel like you haven't stayed at home for over a month now. It's been a while. It was a great trip. Did a stop in New York City, and then Amsterdam, which is one of the world's most beautiful cities. Wandered around a lot across the canals. Went to a Star Wars Symphony, which is like a symphony. They just play Star Wars songs, but they had Stormtroopers and Chewie and the conductor came out as Darth Vader. It was fun. Then went down to Geneva and Zurich. Beautiful. Gave a couple talks. Very nice. No one laughed at any of my jokes or gifts. Everyone's so serious in Switzerland. I loved it. Nicest people on the planet. Really fun. Great food. But uh, yeah, and good to be home. Any topics that the listeners haven't heard you talking about prior anything new i'll tell you what not to do when you're in zurich you should never go into a sauna wearing clothes uh, so i i, I, I that might be the most meb comment ever no, so i was i was you know i love saunas and and hot tubs and so i was Working out in the gym by myself, no one else there. Oh, when are you working out at a gym? Because I, I had uh, sleep issues like the entire trip. I sleep like a baby. I have very clear conscience. I slept at one point 14 hours when I was in Europe. I don't think I've done that since I was in high school. But anyway, jet lag is, is pretty random for me. Like I'll do all the stuff that jet lag to you're supposed to do to avoid it. So work out, not go to sleep at the right time, take melatonin, don't drink alcohol, all that stuff. And it, but it's like a coin flip for me. Sometimes I get it, sometimes I don't. Anyway, I got it. So it was just weird to schedule. Anyway, I was at the gym by myself and went to the sauna. There's no one else there. So I was like, ah, I don't want to go back to my room and, and deal with, uh, you know, dirty clothes. And I didn't have a, a robe or slippers. So I was like, I just went into the sauna by myself. 
And <laughs> this guy comes in, who's, of course, naked, which I have no problem with. I, I had been to saunas in Japan and onsens and all over the world. And some places you wear clothes and some places you don't. Whatever. This guy was so angry at me. Like, it, he was as if I just murdered his entire family. He just berating me and yelling at me. And I was like, dude, sometimes in Japan, they won't let you in if you have tattoos. We and should get that guy in the podcast. I want to hear more. Oh, my God. He was so angry. Anyway, uh, Switzerland was was great. Their stock market is, is not cheap either. They're at a cape of like 25. Um, and it was funny because I was giving a talk and they have the Wall Street Journal just put out their kind of updated version of the Economist Big Mac Index. Do you know what that is? Mm -hmm. It's like where the cost of Big Macs around the world is is a way to look at currencies. And they came up with one for Starbucks lattes and found that Switzerland was the most expensive country in the world, which it was. I mean, I got an iced coffee and it was $8 Mm -hmm. equivalent. I thought Reykjavik was pretty bad for you not too long ago, right? Yeah, that's expensive as well. You know, it's funny. I was tweeting in Australia maybe four years ago when I was having a beer and it was just like obscenely expensive. So anyway, that's, that's our, that's our currency indicator. Switzerland was expensive, but it was fun. Great trip. No, no main takeaways. All right. Well, we have a few questions to dive into. Oh, I'll today, tell you one, but... one comment though. The, it was funny cause the organizer, I was, I was a new talk and basically the theme of the conference in Amsterdam was 60, 40 is expected to be low. What can you then do? And so I kind of wrote a new speech. Wait, 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 wait. Sorry, this was in Amsterdam, they're saying? Amsterdam, Amsterdam had a conference. But 60-40 in the Amsterdam market or the U.S. market? I, what, what, it was unclear. It just meant that they're like, well, because think about it this way. So U.S. stocks are expensive and will do low single digits, but bond yields are higher here than they are in Europe. Bond yields, U.S. is like kind of a high-yielding country. Is it two and cha- two and a half, two two point three now, whatever it is? But most of Europe in is zero. Mm-hmm. I mean, Switzerland's negative, and so yes, their expected returns on the equities are higher. So six percent for say foreign developed, nine and change for foreign emerging. I think, and then the cheapest bucket I think is well into double digits. But their bond yields are zero, so no way the sixty forty works out wherever you are, no matter what, unless you put. All of it in, unless you put the 40 of bonds into high yielding sovereigns and the 60 in the cheap countries. That's the only way it works out. And you have to be extremely different. Anyway, so the the whole point was, so I built a new speech around this and I then decided to use that speech in Zurich and Geneva and with the organizers of CFA societies. And they said, Meb, because in the beginning I talk about the expectation survey where people expect 10.2% returns or 10.5, whatever it was. And millennials was like 12. But he's like, Meb, no, one's, no one in Switzerland assumes that. And I said, well, that's funny, because if you look at the, the survey, it was global. They also expect that in Europe. And I don't know how. So if you have zero or 2% bond yields, you need like 12 to 15% stock other returns to get to an 8% rate of return that most pension funds expect. So you have to be extremely different and crazy to even have a shot. It's just the way math works. It's arithmetic. What are you confused about? You look very confused. Well, I'm, I'm not confused. I am surprised that more of a global orientation and more adopted. So you just mentioned the only way to get this with the 60-40 is to have basically the 40 from uh, you know the higher yielding and the 60 from cheaper global uh, countries. 
So or do something else. Well, I mean, but why is that not so? I mean, that seems kind of an obvious thing, especially with a, a global portfolio. Because yeah, people don't like to be different. I mean, it's if you tell people you have to have this extremely, totally different portfolio, no one's going to do it. No one wants to do it, right? That's so much career risk. They would rather just fail conventionally. But so we talked about Trinity. We talked about some things you could do to get closer to that 8% return. But the first one was take your medicine. Expect if you're going to do 60-40, the expectation should be 3%. You're, so spend less, save more. Be prepared for that. And the example I gave was, is a Stephen Hawking quote, because I have his, something about his book early in presentation. I said, he has a quote where he says, when he's 21, all of his expectations were reduced to zero. Everything after that was upside, was gravy, right? You know, when he got diagnosed with, with his disease. And so the same thing, I said, look, there's your portfolio. Obviously not nearly as dramatic, but here's your portfolio. Expect two, 3% returns. Anything above that, gravy. So design your lifestyle around that. Then on top of that, if you want to start to make these steps that we believe in, tilt towards value, tilt towards trend, be highly concentrated and different, then yes, I think you can get four, six, eight percent returns. But I think you just it's just like losing weight. Like you start with a you start with the the base case and then go from there. So here in the U.S. specifically, I don't hear you talk about this very much, and I'm just going to sort of play a devil's advocate for a minute. To what extent do more economic indicators have any effect on how you see the stock market. So for instance, we just got out a pretty good jobs number this morning, I think around 230,000 jobs added. Uh, Historically, a lot of these indicators are the opposite of what you want them to be. So if you look at, you want to be selling stocks when unemployment is this low and buying it, it, because it correlates with markets doing great and getting expensive. And on the flip side, you, so you want to be selling when GDP is amazing and everything's going great. And you want to be buying when things are terrible and the world's ending historically, yeah. right? So we don't incorporate any of these economic indicators. So I used to do this. So at the origins of Cambria 10 years ago, I had a handful of econometric models and they were cobbled together from a lot of Nelson Freeberg research, research, what's the old Fosback book, Stock Market Logic, I think, and all these books, but a lot of indicators it, it still ended up with trend kind of as the trend in interest rates. So don't fight the Fed and follow the trend. Those are two just very simple and they work. You don't want to particularly be in stocks when interest rates are running up. You don't want to be in stocks when the trend is down and then adding valuation. So there's a number of these other ones. So ISM is a classic. Above 50 times are good, below 50 times are bad, but it's nuanced because when it gets too good times, it's, it's you know, overheated too good. You want to be selling and, and vice versa. There's when it gets really bad. I saw one out today that I tweeted that I'd never seen before, but it was about the conference board's consumer confidence. And it goes back to the 60s and it just puts consumer confidence and it goes along with a lot of these sentiment surveys. Well, could, could you apply like the ISM as a leading indicator to trend, like even before so your that, trend models turn? Well, so that's when, back when I built these, and I should update these, we had these old econometric models and they're very simple. And so, so yes, some of them are coincident. Some of them are leading indicators that you could try to inform a multi-factor model with more signals. And so now it's kind of an endless rabbit hole. And we have old posts on this. If you go back to the blog in 07, 08, 09, we have what happens with all these various asset classes when the yield curve is in various formations, when interest rates are doing this, and there's like a dozen of these econometric, it just, we lost focus. We actually were, we'd reserved a ticker a long time ago for a long short fund based on this. We just kind of moved on. Uh, there, there's a number of shops that focus on things like that. Luthold, Ned Davis, they have a lot of these great sort of econometric. It just, 
so much of it correlates with trend and value in general. Do I think there's value add and, and information to be had? Sure. I know, I know it's been a while. We don't use any. You may not remember, but if you do recall, were there any particular uh, indicators that you felt might help listeners right now as they try to evaluate when this uh, bull might finally give up? No, I mean, like my, my biggest lens is always the final two, value and trend. You know, and so, so many of these other ones, they're interesting, but you often want a composite sort of view. So, so many people just want the one, the one indicator, the Hindenburg Oman, the number of days up down, like all these uh, Dow theory, whatever it may be. And they want this one indicator they can use. But I think the best way to do it is you would probably cobble together 10 of your favorite ones. And a lot, that's what a lot of these quant shops do. They come up with five, 10. I, I think Luthold has like a hundred indicators. That echoes what Gepfer told us in terms of sentiment. Everybody yeah. wants one, but you need to look yeah. at it as a composite. Yeah. And so, I mean, I don't think any are flashing red lights right now. I, I mean, value, value is, is certainly a red light, but most of the economy stuff, like it hasn't started rolling over yet. So you're all in. Romping, stomping, <laughs> bull. Um, all right, fair enough. That was a laugh. By the way, I, it's people who aren't that familiar with our sense of humor. I was in Geneva, no, Zurich. And this is like the one useful thing that Twitter's ever done for me was I tweeted out, I'm like, hey, I'm in, in Switzerland and our good friend Jeremy Schwartz, who's been on the podcast, CIO of Wisdom Tree, said, hey, Meb, I'm going to be in Zurich tomorrow for one day. Also, I was there for one day. Let's grab dinner or beer. And he was on some even more absurd trip. He was in like, you know, Asia, then Milan, then Zurich, then Amsterdam and Dusseldorf or Dusseldorf. I don't know how you pronounce it. Anyway, so we met up. We took a photo. We just had a, I had a beer at the Park Hyatt. He had a sochu cocktail that came out in a bowl with a spoon, which I loved. <laughs> I was trying to take a photo of him with it. So I took a photo, posted it to Twitter, said, hey, you know, look who I caught up with. One of my favorite people on the planet. He had a great podcast, by the way, recently with Ritholtz listeners. You should check out. And, and, in, and typical Meb humor, I don't know if you saw this because you don't spend much time on Twitter. At least I, your page, I don't spend any time. I said... He let it slip that he has a, a new Litecoin ETF in the works, which is oh, a crypto, nice. which is like a yeah. number eight or nine cryptocurrency. And oh my God, by the time I got home to my hotel, there was just dozens of these crypto crazies. And we got to come up with a good phrase for the similar like gold blugs and, and for crypto people that are just crypto in, crazy. Like crypto crazy. One? No, but someone was saying. I asked this on Twitter. There were some good suggestions. It was like blockheads or blockchain, you know, something. <laughs> anyway, so these people just started going insane. They're like, oh my God, a Litecoin ETF is coming, which of course is no possible chance. The whole point about the Bitcoin ETF never coming out is there's no futures market. There's no way to custody and hold it. And so, but in, so poor Jeremy was trying to, he's like, oh my God. So he's responding on Twitter. He's like, people just FYI, Meb is, is clearly kidding and they just started going insane. They were so angry. They were like, wow, but wait, he has all these followers. He's just lying. And there's some others like fake news and you know, all this stuff. But I, but I was laughing because I was laughing because I, and I, I was just, I mean, I was just dying laughing. And of course, Litecoin was up, I think 30 some percent today. So I, was, I was calling it the Jeremy Schwartz effect. Um, People but, take their crypto very seriously. You can't mess they, with they're them. so insane. It's, it's, it's reached pure, 
Well, unadulterated mania at this point. Let's talk about that. Because like yesterday, we saw Bitcoin briefly breach 19,000. And then since then, it's pulled back, I think, 20% or so. Bear uh, market. This is, you know, all in advance of the CBOE and trading futures on it. And so there's, you know, the speculation about what the effect of the futures will have, whether that's going to bring in more institutional money or whether that'll compress the value premium. So like, how do you see it? What do you think? Okay, so we've talked about crypto quite a bit before. Let, let me preface with a few main thoughts. First, and I tweeted this, I said, first of all, investors, lesson, reminder, you do not have to have an opinion on every investment that comes across your plate. And this, and let's think back to the next last 10 years. This applies to Tesla stock. Everyone feels like they have to opine. Is Tesla the next greatest, best car company in the world in stock, or is it a zero? I'm going to go bankrupt. You don't have to have an opinion. You also don't have to have an opinion on Greek stocks, or your buddy who's opening up a wine bar down the street that wants an investment, or an example I gave was a craft beer company or in, in LA, I mean, we've had people ask me if I want to invest in their movie companies or uh, scripts or, you know, all of these investments every day. It's the old Buffett, you know, Mr. Market knocks on the door. You don't have to have an opinion. That's totally fine. And so my general opinions on crypto is a couple. So I look at everything through this lens of value and trend. The value investor in me it's not that I hate it. It's just a, a no interest whatsoever. There's no cash flows. I, there's, there's no way to value it. It's not interesting to me. I have no interest. It's not that I hate it. I, I have for many, many years, if you read my writing, I say, I'm a pleasant cheerleader. I would love for there to be a clean, simple, cost-effective, safe, secure digital currency. I think that's awesome. I've been writing about that for years. And that's nowhere near where we are, by the way. And then on the trend following side, it's hip, hip, hooray. I think it's amazing. I think it's absolutely, if you're a speculator, it's, it, had you gone long at Bitcoin at a dollar and it's now 15,000 or whatever it is, that's a Hall of Fame trade. That's the same thing as buying Uber at 10 million seed round, like Jason Calcanis did on the podcast, and it's now worth 50 billion. But that's kind of also my old point. I said, you know, there's over 30,000 securities that trade around the world. You don't have to have FOMO about all of them. And there's always going to be something that goes up 10x, 100x, 1000x, 10,000x. And what you're seeing now with Bitcoin is, is totally gotten into the full mania phase. All the, and I, I had printed this out. So we, when we wrote Global Value Book, and I, I, we were writing an update, by the way, listeners. Um, I did it on the plane ride back from Zurich. So we're going to update that and hopefully publish it in Q1. Maybe Q2. We'll see. But the first chapter was talking about bubbles. And, and there was a cool quote from Schiller. So there's three kind of quotes. I think it's instructive. One was from Schiller. This is, he was on NPR. And he said, a bubble is, is like a mental illness and has the following characteristics. And so we'll apply this lens to crypto. One, a time of rapidly increasing prices. Check. Two, people tell each other stories that purport to justify the reasons for the bubble. Check. All sorts of crazy stories out there. Three, people tell each other stories about how much money they're making. I see that everywhere. It's unbelievable. Four, people feel envy and regret that they didn't participate. FOMO. Five, the news media are involved. And I would add six, is it like everyone who historically isn't involved in investing or has any interest is now involved. So I, I'm getting so many conversations with people, friends, that 
have zero interest in investing and their girlfriends and wives and fathers and sons are participating. On the flip side, we got Cliff Asnes, who says in one of his top 10 peeves, he says a lot of people, you know, bubbles, it's should be technically referred to a specific pattern of investment behavior, but it often comes to refer to overvaluation. He says, to have content, the term bubble should indicate a price that no reasonable future outcome can justify. I believe that tech stocks in early 2000 fit this description. I don't think there were assumptions short of them owning the entire GDP of the earth that justify their valuations. However, in the wake of 99, 2000, 2007, 2008, with the prevalence of the use of the word bubble described these two instances, we have dumbed the word down and now everyone uses it too much. An asset or security is often declared to be in a bubble when it is more accurately described as expensive or possessing a lower than normal expected return, which by the way is what we often talk about with stocks. US stocks, they're not in a bubble, they're not going to return much. And then he ends with the descriptions lower than normal expected return and bubble are not the same thing. So that kind of sums up my lens of how I see this, you know, is, is it's something that I'm not that interested in. And, and by the way, the vast majority of people have no plan. They're going to buy some, they're going to see how it goes, but also there's, and there's a great Yusko quote, which by the way, this it's kind of ironic because he, Mark was on the podcast, was a great guest, good friend. He, he's, he's talking about cryptocurrencies all the time now. But his famous quote is, people buy what they wish they had bought. And so, look, that trade from Bitcoin from a dollar to 10,000, again, Hall of Fame trade, amazing, to the very few people that have done it, by the way. So there's a lot more people that got in at 100 or 1,000, and it's declining amount of people that, that got in early. Again, Hall of Fame trade. But going forward, what would you rather have? And I'll probably tweet this out. A basket of early stage startup company stocks that have increasing revenue and a cool product with amazing founders and a market niche and the product is increasing in revenue. So it's making a million, two million, four million a year. Buy a basket of those or a basket of crypto. And so the chance of finding that unicorn, which is 100x, is the typical language. So that's same as buying a seed company at 10 million and going to a billion. So Bitcoin would have to go to 2 million for the same thing to happen. Like, what, what are the chances? That is possible. Totally possible. All right, well, scale it back. Let's, let's not burst the bubble for the crypto fanatics out there. Tell me about the specifics, though, of Sunday. So when futures trading starts to happen, I think one of the fears is, all right, well, now that people can short it, uh, that's going to erode the value premium or whatnot. But the implication of a value premium is that somebody can value this thing, which you can't because you said no, there's no, no cash there's flows. No, no, no. So how do you, I mean, and then it's just a battle of people think it's worth more, people think it's worth less. So how does that dynamic play out? It just means there's more liquidity now all of a sudden. I mean, the crypto market at this point is essentially a micro, a small cap marketplace where there's no liquidity. It's it's like a stock. If you have a stock where 90% of the float is held by, say, a family, and 10% is all that trades, you create huge volatility because no one, like, even though it may be a $500 billion market cap stock, if everyone was closely held and only 10% of the float trades, it's gonna be hugely volatile because there's only a few people trading it. And, and that's clearly the case with Bitcoin. On top of that, and I think Jared Dillian in his private newsletter, we got to have him back on the podcast, was talking about it. He said, look, the people that own it, and there's so many just ridiculous mania stats. So some, the, one of our buddies we did a panel with in New York, Charlie Biello, and I may have just murdered his last name, but he's been tweeting a bunch about this. And he's been asking a survey, is, is Bitcoin's gone from 1,000 up to 20,000? 
And he says, is it a bubble? Is it undervalued or whatever? And so it's time stamped over time and he showed it. And as the price goes up, more people think, more and more people think it's undervalued. So as it's gotten to the highest price, the most amount of people think it's undervalued. So the people that are owning it, it's, there is zero consideration that it will go down. And so we saw this, this is, for the people who weren't around in the late 90s, this is exactly what it felt like. This is, and I've already lived through, you know, my bubble. Mine was the late 90s. I was in college, so I was young, but all these young people, I mean, the average age of all these crypto hedge funds is like 25. There is, it's unidirectional. There is zero comprehension of the, the chance that it would go back down 50, 80, 90, 100%. And so these people will not sell. They will sell. So there's so many examples of like CMGI, the stock. There's an article that Jason Zweig posted. There's gonna be a lot of show notes, by the way, apparently. Jason Zweig posted this and it was an article about a guy about buying CMGI in the late 90s and just got caught up and kept buying more and more until he had half of his entire, I think, retirement in this one stock and then sold it all when it went down to $1. Finally sold it. Because it just becomes religion. It becomes a totally caught up mania. I feel and like so, I had that experience with JDS Uniphase. So, yeah, exactly. So a friend of ours, you know, had, had texted me, says, Meb, you know, what's, what is your sell target with Bitcoin? I'm like, I don't even understand your question. I'm like, why do you own some? He says, no, but my wife does. And I said, okay, look, that's how, most, how everyone who's getting involved in this gambling approaches. They just buy some and see, what, see what's going to happen. And that is, the buying is the easy part. Having the sell discipline, and this applies to stocks, houses, whatever. I'll list like five totally reasonable ways to approach this. Say, look, I'm gonna buy some, but I'm gonna sell one quarter if it goes up 50%. I'll sell another quarter if it goes up 100%. I'll sell a quarter in three years, and I'll hold on to a quarter forever. So just be intentional come up with some rules because otherwise you will wait till it goes down 90 and then you'll sell. Another approach could be like, look, I don't own any cryptocurrencies. I'm going to put in limit orders for them one unit each at down 70, down 80, down 90. So when these exchanges continue to have these crashes and flash crashes and our buddy John Bollinger was tweeting, he said this, I haven't seen a market that acts like it's being cornered since like the Hunt brothers and silver. He's like, this is a very familiar look to this. And so that's a totally reasonable approach. Like if you really want to be in crypto, why don't you put in a bunch of limit orders? So, and then that's a second possibility. A third would be, I'm going to buy it and I'm going to sell half when it goes below the 50-day moving average and half when it goes below the 200-day moving average. These are all reasonable approaches. You know, what is not a reasonable approach is buying some and see what's going to happen. Yeah. Last reasonable approach would be, Meb, I have a great global asset allocation should I buy some crypto? Sure, buy some in the proportion that it is of the global market portfolio, which is about 0.1% or 0.01, depending on how you look at the world. So you got a million dollar portfolio, a thousand bucks, great. You'll never have any FOMO about it forever and just let it sit there for the next 10 years. Buy the, the top 10. It's, it's, and this is also a great example, like the, the transaction costs. And the, again, the futures will help liquidity absolutely and by the way this is introducing the first chance to be able to sell and short at scale up to now you you can't short this market you could try to short some of the vehicles but high borrow costs the only other exchange traded ones are in, in sweden exchange traded notes 
anyway so those are all my thoughts i got a lot i'm sure this has been done i just haven't seen it yet if you could superimpose the hyperbolic rise of bitcoin against either tulip bulbs or south sea bulbs. it was actually funny i mean so yeah, a lot of people have done it so the, the scale of bitcoin has been so sharp so quickly it's a it's a huge move very quickly and so some of the others play out they're shorter tom mcclellan who's also been on this podcast has a great chart that superimposes the Dow Jones this year and Bitcoin. It looks exactly the same. Now, the scale is very different, of course, obviously, because Bitcoin started the year maybe like a thousand or something and it's up, you know, 10x, whereas the Dow is not up 10x, but it's almost like the exact same chart. But it's one has obviously vastly more volatility. The interesting thing in all this is that the focus is all on. Bitcoin and crypto itself, and it seems to be less about the underlying technology, which I think is more of a game changer down the road, blockchain. Okay, so let's talk about that. We used to have a Bitcoin payment option on the Idea Farm, which by the way, listeners, by the time you listen to this, the Idea Farm will have been totally redesigned. We got a new launch of the website with a library of 500 archived investment pieces. You got to check it out. Uh, I highly recommend. It's really cool. It's beautiful. So we used to have a payment option for Bitcoin on the Idea Farm, which would have been amazing. I, I probably have some Bitcoins I don't even know about somewhere. <laughs> yeah, you're actually a multimillionaire yeah, right now. I, uh, <laughs> I'd be happy just being a Bitcoin thousandaire. Um, I'll have to look into that because I left it up there for a while and no one used it. So no, no one I know has ever transacted using Bitcoin other than to make a deposit to like a sports gambling website in the Caribbean. Um, so that's one. And then Patrick had, Patrick O'Shaughnessy on his podcast had a great guest who's involved in that space. And he says, look, all these investment coin offerings, which, which by the way, on the scale of scam, I think they are going to get destroyed by the SEC. Hmm. They are absolutely, in my mind, security offerings. And it's the most scammy thing I've seen if you exclude a bunch of the shady companies out of utah and like vancouver and the like mining and marijuana and who knows what pink sheets just dog crap this this is the worst i've seen in a long time and i think it's going to get absolutely destroyed by the sec when they get their act together but but this guy made the case he's like no one is using these products so like filecoin why would you ever use filecoin instead of using dropbox it's 100% 100% for speculation at this point, which is kind of the definition of a mania. And so I, look, will, will blockchain be useful? Probably. You know, the, the quote that every single person makes to try to sound smart is, I don't really have an opinion on Bitcoin. It sounds like a bubble, but blockchain is going to be like the internet 2.0. That is amazing. You know, that's what everyone says. And it, I just, I have no idea. I, I, will it be useful? Is it new technology? Sure. There's a lot of other stuff that's going to be pretty cool too. Well, I mean, the interesting thing for me as it, release of blockchain is whether or not it's going to have that effect on various middlemen sort of eradicate a lot of them like if you think about good banking I think about so. sort of money transfer all these sort of middlemen who basically just handle money versus have a huge value add allegedly blockchain has the ability to sort of uh, make them irrelevant can i can i read a, a quick quote i posted this almost 10 years ago um in this i i tweeted i said i could sum up my entire investment philosophy and particularly with regards to what's going on in the, in the crypto world with this Kurt Vonnegut piece from Galapagos in the 1980s. Can I read this? You got a second? 
Have you ever this, have you ever read this? This is the Meb Faber show, yeah. not the Jeff. You can do what you yeah. want, man. He goes, and this is one of my favorite books. I love it. Y'all should check it out. He goes, the thing was, though, when James Wake got there, a worldwide financial crisis, a sudden revision of human opinions as to the value of money and stocks and bonds and mortgages and so on, bits of paper had ruined the tourist business, not only in Ecuador, but practically everywhere. Ecuador, like all of the Galapagos Islands, was mostly lava and ash, and so could not begin to feed its 9 million people. It was bankrupt, and so could no longer buy food from countries with plenty of topsoil, so the seaport of Guayaquil was idle, and the people were beginning to starve to death. Neighboring Peru and Colombia were bankrupt, too. Mexico and Chile and Brazil and Argentina were likewise bankrupt. And Indonesia and the Philippines and Pakistan and India and Thailand and Italy and Ireland and Belgium and Turkey. Whole nations were suddenly in the same situation as the San Mateo, unable to buy with their paper money and coins or their written promises to pay later, even the barest essentials. They were suddenly saying to people with nothing but paper representations of wealth, wake up, you idiots. Whatever made you think paper was so valuable? The financial crisis was simply the latest in a series of murderous 20th century catastrophes which originated entirely in human brains. From the violence people were doing to themselves and each other and to all other living things, for that matter, a visitor from another planet might have assumed that the environment has gone haywire and people were in such a frenzy because nature was about to kill them all. But the planet a million years ago was as moist and as nourishing as it is today and unique in that respect in the entire Milky Way. All that had changed was people's opinion of the place. And that last line is what applies so much to any investing asset class. So if you look at stock valuations, what's the difference between U.S. stocks trading at a cape of 45 or 5? Simply what people are willing to pay. What's the difference between Bitcoin at 10 cents and 20,000? Simply what people are willing to pay. So there, there's a big hat tip to the people that got this right uh, as far as this trade and, and were able to kind of understand the investment psychology and take, I mean, it's and take advantage of people acting like humans and being utterly foolish, you know, and getting caught up in a media. And so again, to the trend followers and people that got it right, kudos, but it is not an investment that I, it's not an investment. It's a speculation. Let me make you squirm and pin you down. On Sunday, when futures trading starts, what is your hunch? Does this thing collapse or does it rage in price? I don't know. Um, I mean, like, I, I, you could easily play out. You could easily write the epitaph of, is it epitaph? Is that when someone dies? I think it sounds about right. Of crypto right now. Like, I could write a chapter for publication in a year or two with what exactly is going to transpire in the next two years. And it's likely going to be very accurate. And you're going to say, and everyone with, like, in the use fake examples of people and so and so. Like, the guy that just sold all of his possessions and took his family he's like traveling around the world now in a van because he put it all in Bitcoin stuff like that. You hear, I, I could easily play it out in either way now, but, but to me, if you're trying to invest in it now, the chances of it going from 20,000 to 2 million compared to buying a basket, it just does not seem like a reasonable bet. So, you know, you know what reminds me of? So there's a great quote and it's from the old, I'm not going to murder it. It's from the old CEO of BP you know, one of the largest oil companies on the planet 10, 20 years ago. And he's, he, someone was asking him to predict the price of oil. And basically he said, you know, I, I can confidently predict that it will vary. After that, I'm more than happy to gossip with you. And, and this is the guy who literally has more information than anyone on the planet. And so with Bitcoin, like, could I make a scenario where 
you know, it crashes and goes back down to a dollar or can I make a scenario where it goes crazy straight up or, or is volatile and goes sideways? Like it's, those are all completely possible. All right. Well, in the professional circles you run in, what are you hearing about the realities of sort of the big dollars from institutions looking to, you know, they might view this as an actual asset class. They're looking for non-correlation to equities and whatnot. So they're going to move. I don't, I don't think, I don't think wall street, traditional wall street is involved. But, it, but I think that might be one of the arguments is when they do become involved, all that sea of money that's going to flow in. Do you give any sort of credence to that or is that just a pipe dream? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. It'll be fun to I, see. I, I, I have zero interest in owning it. I, I Like I said, the, the trade that had made sense to me would have been shorting the closed-in fund, hedging with the futures, or vice versa, hedging with the underlying. Let's get the Winklevoss twins on here. They, oh, God. Let's keep. Let's move. On. Is this like the first question? This took like forty-five minutes. No, that was just like all I didn't want to talk about is crypto. All right, let's knock out a few actual listener questions. That was that was just me getting your thoughts on crypto. All right, real quick. Wes Gray and Toby Carlisle have argued that enterprise value to EBIT is a much better ratio than PE for latching onto the value premium. So why not evaluate countries by the cyclically adjusted enterprise value to EBIT ratio as opposed to CAPE? What do you got, Meb? I think it's probably fine. You know, any valuation indicator should line up. I mean, if you look at all the valuation indicators on U.S. stocks, for example, they're all top decile. Mar- I think market cap to GDP, which is Buffett's favorite, I think it's close to hitting higher than the internet bubble or already passed. Uh, ditto with price to sales. Ditto with capes not there yet. So some are higher, some are lower. So we use, when we compare countries around the world, we do this for 45 countries on the idea farm, we use... It's either four or five cap cap metrics. So it's ten year metrics of earnings. I think we have cash flow, book and sale. No dividends, because some countries, you know, enterprise value to EBITDA has worked best historically. That's a fact. But what you want with the value indicators, you I want the average of all of them. I, I don't want to be an outlier. Price to book has been horrible for twenty years now, but will it do better going forward? I don't know. So I, I want the kind of the middle juice because all that really matters, the muscle movement, as, as Wes would say, is that you're doing value in the first place and so you're buying the cheap and avoiding the expensive. Mm-hmm. So they should all say the same thing. So they're all right now saying certain, certain countries are expensive and there's a lot of other countries that are cheap. And then apply it. So Wes wrote a paper that uh, CAPE works great on stocks too, by the way. Anyway. And sectors. Schiller wrote one on sector rotation using CAPE. Back, and he has a fund that doesn't. It's done great. Is that the one with um, Jeff Sherman? It's, it's both. He's got one that does it on its own and one that they do like a, they license the index for double line. Uh, next question from a listener. Uh, listeners, by the way, Meb and I had a, um, a little back and forth on this before the podcast. I don't think we've read this. Meb thinks we might have touched on it. If it sounds familiar, uh, let us know. I don't think we're doubling up, but we'll see. Uh, someone puts a gun to your head and forces you to place $1 million belonging to an orphanage in a single U.S. stock. What would you pick? Pick a, uh, excuse me, a, in a single non-U.S. stock. Pick a U.S. stock if you're not familiar with foreign companies. Note that if the stock goes bust, the orphans will be hungry. And before you answer, Meb, I know that your answer is probably going to be, well, I, I wouldn't do that. You know, you're more of a, uh, you're an ETF guy. You're more of a broad sort of 30,000 foot guy. So I'm curious why you don't do more 
a single stock selection because you can apply the same. We do lots of single stock selection, but it's from algorithms and rules based strategies. And first of all, obviously, I would never go buy one stock. That's ludicrous. Those poor orphans are either going to starve or all get free tuition to Harvard. I can't even name that many foreign stocks, you know, despite the fact we have hundreds of millions of dollars invested in them because we, we do it through a quantitative, emotion-free, rules-based approach, which is the way that I want it to be. I can't name the U.S. stocks we own. So let's reframe the question. And here's a question I really like. And this, so by the way, listeners, we need a new question for 2018. So 2016, first year of the podcast was something beautiful, useful, magical. Second year of the podcast was what is your most memorable investment? We need a new one for next year. I was thinking, and then one that I would love to ask people. So if I had to ask an investment manager, say, look, what is your ideal portfolio? If you have to hold it for 10 years, so same as this question, but the caveat is you have to put your family's entire net worth in it Mm -hmm. and we'll grade you on return, sharp, and drawdown. So we'll take the average of the three and ask what, these money managers that come on the podcast would invest in. And in specific, say, you know, I put 10% in gold and 30% in smart beta value this and 10% in cryptocurrency, you know, like that, because our global, global asset allocation book had hugely different allocations, but they all ended up in the same place. But I feel like when you talk to a lot of the money managers on here, they have much more nuanced approaches to active management, for example, mm-hmm. and, and approaches. So mine would probably just be Trinity. Half in mm-hmm. global market cap buy and hold with tilt storage value and momentum the other half in uh, momentum and trend-based strategies. I love that. Like, I, I'd put that away forever because it's meant to respond to what's going on in the world. I'd be curious if as an addendum to that question, you sort of ask them over what time frames that would change. So let's say, for instance, what would the portfolio be, you said 10 years? Well, would it be significantly different if you said only five versus 20? Or does it apply yeah. equally? I and, actually, by the way, update... If you remember on Patrick's podcast, we did a factor draft for stock selection. And I was harassing him the other day. I said, dude, it's been like six months. I'm pretty sure I'm just destroying you on the screen. (laughs) Are you not publishing the updates because I'm killing you? Let's see it. So he said he would. So we'll publish. We'll talk about the results when we start. Oh, yeah. I want to see that. Mm. I like the fact that we brought this up on a past pod where you had preemptively um, chosen one of his factors, yeah, it's, and it was more game theory. It's the Keynes <laughs> Beauty Contest, of which which ones you could pick, pick before the other person did. Uh, you're going to confuse my a lot mind's going to crush him though when it when it eventually we have a bear market because I have a trend filter, and he doesn't. So if if stocks roll over, he's he's in trouble. Cage match. You versus yeah. Shaughnessy. Yeah. All right, last question. Uh, it actually is on trend following. A trend following strategy is cyclical. Buy when others are buying, sell when others are selling. This is reminiscent of the portfolio insurance strategy in 1987 that caused the markets to crash since it was adopted by everyone. Do you worry that if trend following becomes as popular as portfolio insurance in 87, this could lead to another meltdown? No. Um, one, because there's so many varied markets most of these trend followers trade 50 to 100 markets. So is, is it asking about the meltdown in euro dollars or is it in wheat or is it in U.S. stocks? Is it in, you know I mean, what? They I also see. don't use the same rule. So these guys use vastly different rules, but there's also people that do a trend with counter trend and trend on monthly time basis. It, so it's, I, I don't even think about, first of all, trend following is not that popular. It's had ter- various trend following strategies like managed futures have had a terrible run 
over the past handful of years. Managed futures, I think, is flat on the year again. Now, some trend following strategies, some of ours are up almost 20%, and some are only up like four. And managed futures is flat. So trend trend is not a homogenous, just one thing. So, And plus, I don't think that portfolio insurance, it often gets cited as the reason of 1987, but I don't, I don't see it as like, this is what happened. This is the one thing. When you personally first started uh, dealing or trading trend on your own portfolios, from a behavioral perspective, did you find it hard to stick to your rules? I mean, I think it's tempting, but this is the beauty of the automated services now. Like, I, I don't even think about my accounts. I don't ever check the balances. I don't look them up. I don't have to deal with the trading. I mean, it's it's all just words in the background. So I don't care if you buy the global market portfolio, if you do Trinity, if you do 60-40, but having it automated removes all... It's like having someone give you, if you're on a diet, give you a meal three times a day and it's prepared versus having a refrigerator in your office that you can just open up the the door as much as you want. Like you're going to behave. What are you going to do? You're going to go get snacks and eat poorly. We, we started getting our inflow of, uh, holiday gift packages, which is just chocolate out the wazoo and, and lots of sweets. So I find myself eating a lot of those now because they're there. So the, the, the temptation to muck around with it. So yes, I think a lot of people struggle because if you buy and hold, you do nothing. So at least you do nothing, but trend following requires decisions if you're doing it on your own. So I think it's better to either outsource it or have it somehow be automated. Well, I asked that question because I think that answer points toward another reason why this won't become that much of an issue because the behavioral side of it, if you're not implementing in a uh, a sort of a robo that does it for you, the behavioral challenges of of following your rules consistently can be challenging and a lot of people will fall away. We just wrote a 10-year retrospective on our original white paper uh, and that's supposed to come out in the journal portfolio management this month. And so I'll try to record a audiobook of that, but that's a good example of something that, I mean, I can tell you so many people that adopted trend following post crisis that are now giving up on it. Mm. It's people just, you know, that they, they, they continue just to shoot themselves in the foot over and over again. It, going back to William Bernstein's old quote of, what was it? He's like, I, I used to think 90% of the people shouldn't be managing their own money. Now, now I think it's 99 or 99.9. Mm-hmm. You know, we just see the same stuff over and over again. And, and the trend following, I mean, there's so many examples of this recently where people have just been giving up on it. I mean, we have, this is literally uncharted territory. And I'm hoping, by the way, I'm cheering for it. Up December, and it's flat currently, would be only calendar year in history where every single month is up in the stock market. I think it's because of our podcast. Uh, yeah, I mean, everyone knew this a year ago. They said Donald Trump getting elected, everything's going to be calm. It's going to be the least volatile market in history. <laughs> everyone knew that, predicted it, right? Huge up market. All right, last thing here, uh, and then we'll wrap it up. We tend to get a fair amount of questions that trickle in asking about company 401ks. And I don't know if there's something that you can really address because it seems like but the gist of the question is, hey, I've got some assets tied up in my 401k. What strategy do you think might work with this? And, you know, what should I do? I would imagine that's a very hard question for you to answer because you don't know. I mean, like, I think you should maximize your tax tax exempt accounts. Like that's a huge one to, to the extent you can. But often what happens is depending on where they are and the provider, their high fee, there's few options. So usually I tell people, I like to say, buy the whatever you can get for the global market portfolio or whatever the cheapest index fund options are, use those. 
and and just use that as part of your buy and hold allocation. In my case, it goes 100% into an index emerging market fund because there's not that many choices. So over the last two years, it just consistently dollar cost average because I said, look at all these choices. What do I want exposure to? I want exposure to the cheapest stocks in the world. So it just buys 100% of my 401k in emerging markets. So it, you just got to kind of deal with the hand or dealt. You probably don't want to mess around with doing a bunch of trading because I think there's sometimes there's lockups and penalty. It just it's a mess. So, but maximize. I mean, it's a huge it's a huge benefit. All right, why don't we wrap it up? Uh, this might be the last radio show we do in 2017. No, let's do so, one more. That's heartbreaking. Uh, we got to well, do one. Maybe we'll do one from Colorado. Well, if we do, snow. if we do great. Otherwise, why don't you give everybody a rundown of what the end of your year is going to bring and and um, what's I, co- your travel? When I don't know the up? answer. I'm done. I like this trip is it's worn me out. I'm finished. When are you going I to Colorado? It's it forever. I'm not going. Oh, well, I'm going to Colorado. Yeah, if Colorado listeners, maybe we'll do a happy hour meetup. We'll grab some locals, uh, pick a pick a good spot. I'm probably heading there around the 17th ish for a week or two. Okay, uh, would be fun. So if you're in Colorado, hit me up. Would be fun. We'll we'll pick something. Uh, other than that, yeah, I, I'm my travel. I'm sure it'll change, but I, I say I'm not going anywhere. Only thing we have on the books is a private speech in Nicaragua. Oh yeah, yeah I forgot about that. <laughs> so other than that, we may maybe Austin. Someone invited us to come to Austin in the spring, which I love. Texas. All right. Anything else been? on your end? Have you ever been to Austin? Yeah, back in the band days, we played South by Southwest. What? That, yeah. did, that didn't exist. You're too old for South by Southwest. <laughs> this was South by Southwest before it was cool. No, this was. Was South, there like 20 the, people there? This was this was South by Southwest, the equivalent when like Bitcoin was at a dollar. This is back no, in the no, day, it man. Less than that. You're, you're, no, 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 I'm saying you're on, on the scale. I'm saying on the scale of generally oh. where it was in its creation. Oh, we were there oh. early, man. Oh, I was like, Bitcoin didn't exist when you were playing the bass. <laughs> I agree with that. I think it's kind of because originally it was a music conference. Yeah, I mean, and now it it's transformed into film and tech. It's mainly it's driven by tech now, which kind of yeah. sucks. And there's some infighting amongst the groups. There's like the tech people and the music people and the. Uh, I loved it. I had no business being there, but that's, I went. It's a great thing. That's awesome. Went and hung out and listened to some great music and a lot of barbecue. All right, we're just rambling at this point. All right, uh, listeners, send us lots of gifts. We've run out of peanuts. <laughs> no. Jeff, Jeff, just plowing through those. Those are great. We need some more questions. Ask us anything. We, we need to fill up. We're, we get a, uh, some interesting ideas, questions, thoughts. Fire them over the mailbag. Feedback at themebfabershow.com. As a reminder, episodes are always at mebfaber.com forward slash podcast or just at mebfaber.com. You can find them. Subscribe to the show for enjoying it. Leave a review. We may have to start reading some of the reviews online. There's some pretty funny ones. We'll do that maybe at the end of the year. Anyway, thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. Good investing.